this morning we're going to talk about God is holy. And I'm going to begin us with a passage from Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Um, by the way, while I'm looking, while I'm reading this with somebody, in fact, I see Grant already with his Bible open, so I'll just have him do it. Look up 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. Um, Exodus 15.11 says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So you have this, this idea of God being majestic in holiness. And one of the things that you see over and over in Scripture, and I don't have to persuade you, I don't have to come up with a bunch of Bible verses to convince you that the Bible teaches that God is holy. It's something that we say. It's something that we affirm. It's something that, that all Christians believe. And, and yet at the same time, I wonder what we really, if we really know it. In other words, I wonder if we think very much about what we're talking about when we use the word holy. Um, if you just go to the Hebrew, there's this word kadosh. If you just want to know a Hebrew word for something, kadosh means holy. It means to be set apart. We translate set apart as holy. And in other words, there is just a massive difference between God and us. God is separated from us. He is different from us. He is distinct from us. Uh, another passage that actually teaches this really clearly is the one that I had Grant look up, which is 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. Would you read that? It says, uh... No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So the idea of distinctness, set-apartness, differentness, whatever you sort of different words you want to try to use to get at the idea really comes out there, right? There's no one like you. Uh, there's no one holy like the Lord. No one's as holy as the Lord. Um, and so he's different from us. He's, he's unlike us. And one of the most helpful books I ever read on the subject of holiness is called, is called Devoted to God, and it's by Sinclair Ferguson. And I wish I had a physical copy. I just have it digitally, um, which is the case with sometimes with these books that go on sale on Kindle, and then I've got these nice digital copies, and I can't let anybody borrow them. So maybe I need to get back to buying physical books again. But Sinclair Ferguson talks about the holiness of God, and, and he says, all the stuff that I just said is, is good and it's technically true, but it doesn't really get at the meaning of holiness because the definition of God as distinct from us and apart from us, it doesn't convey what holiness is because even if we didn't exist, even if you didn't exist and I didn't exist and there were no human beings in the entire universe, God would still be holy. What then would it mean for God to be holy if there was none of if none of us existed? What would it mean for God to be holy then? And uh, the word that Ferguson says that he actually prefers is the word devoted. He actually likes the word devoted. He still uses the word holy because obviously it's it's in Scripture. It's ingrained in us. It's been translated as devoted as holy for, for years and years. But when you think of the word devoted, it actually gets more at the idea of what it means to be holy. Um, as soon as I hear the word devoted, maybe let's do this as just sort of a group experiment. When you think of the word devoted, what do you think of? What are the sort of ideas, things, things that come to mind? What's that? Bond. A bond. All right. I like that. What else? Faithful. 
Faithful? Or devoted to something. Devoted to something? Okay. There is an object. Yeah, you're right. Makes me think of the movie Grease with Olivia Newton John. Hopelessly devoted to you. All right. They were gonna watch Grease yesterday and then they picked something else instead. Not that that helps you at all. Anybody else? What 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 sort of any other things come to mind when we do that sort of thought experiment with that word? It makes me think of marriage vows because there's this moment where you uh, you have the words of consent from for the bride and groom and you say to them, forsaking all others, will you be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And immediately I just think, this is a call to devotion to each other. It's like you, yeah, Olivia Newton-John, you know, she's got it right. You know, hopelessly devoted to each other. We need to be devoted to each other. It's almost like marriage vows come to my mind at least. And so these words, this idea of being devoted, these ideas, this idea of being faithful to one represents what it means to be devoted, to be faithful to only one, to forsake all others. And it's like Robert said, that devotion has to have an object. The question is, what are you devoted to? And so when we, when we talk about God's holiness, first and foremost, we are talking about his devotion to himself. His devotion to himself. Um, while I'm uh, speaking, well, actually, I don't have a verse down, so never mind. I'm not going to give you that verse to read. <laughs> um, sometimes when I was in seminary, we would read Gerhardus Voss. And Voss is a tough cookie, cookie to read. We would read his biblical theology. Did you guys have to read his biblical theology? All right, it's not easy to read. And for years, I thought, well, Gerhardus Voss must just be really hard to read. But we're very blessed. In the last couple years, Richard Gaffin and a team of translators took another book of his, translated it into English, and it turns out we just needed good translators. And so... Well, that's why it was so hard for reading the Dutch edition. We're, we're reading like a, a version that... He, well, the Dutch would be really hard to read. I think we're reading one that he wrote for himself, but he's a Dutchman and he's just writing for English people and he wrote it so bad. He's just, just not a great writer. But it turns out he's all right. Just let someone else do the translating. So his systematic theology, I think it was called Reformed Dogmatics, got translated, and he's so readable. And and so I'm so excited whenever I can bring in some readable Voss and it doesn't go over people's heads. This is what Voss says. Because remember, I, I was just saying, I did all that long introduction to say that God is devoted to himself. Listen to what Voss says. He says, God is not only distinguished from all that exists outside of him, but he also knows himself, seeks himself, and loves himself as the supreme embodiment of rational perfection. So this is why, I mean, this still still fancy language, but it's readable at least. God loves himself. He seeks himself. He delights in himself. He loves himself. We, when, we, when we recognize this, we are starting to get at what it means for God to be holy. We're getting at what it means for God to be devoted to himself. And then he tells us, he gives a definition of God's holiness. And this is what he says holiness is. It is that attribute by which God seeks and loves himself as the highest good. So, so maybe you think, well, out of that 
that the idea of God being devoted to himself as the definition of holiness seems a little fishy. Well, Voss says the same thing. He's, he, and, and this is, I like standing on that kind of ground because I don't know, Gerhardus Voss, probably not a household name to you guys, but when I was in seminary, if Voss said it, it's probably true. Um, so in other words, for God to be holy is for him to be devoted to himself. It means he loves himself. He seeks his own good. And, uh, and Fergus, Sinclair Ferguson says this is the, the definition of holiness that we need because it's one that we can relate more to. Because he says this helps us realize that um, holiness isn't something scientific. It's not like a substance that gets passed around. Holiness isn't anything like that. Holiness is personal. It's personal. It isn't uh, about analyzing a thing to see if it has enough content of holiness, as if there could be enough holiness in a thing or something like that. Instead, he says it's personal because God is personal and he made us to be personal and he made us to be devoted to him just like he's devoted to him. And I think that helps us understand why holiness is a special thing and I think it helps us understand sort of what it really means. So here's what Ferguson says. He says, Holiness is the intensity of the love that flows within the very being of God among and between each of the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So think about this. Um, I said this before. Whatever our definition of holiness is, it needs to be something that doesn't require a human being or an observer for it to be true. It needs to be something that God was always holy even before he ever created anything, before he made anything. And so the Trinity helps us get at that, right? Because in the Trinity, you have the Father who loves the Son. You have the Son who loves the Father. You have the Spirit who loves the Father and the Son. All of them loving one another. They are a community of love. And they're devoted to each other, and they're devoted to each other's good. There, are, there is no human being in the equation. There is nobody there that's watching and seeing God and saying, there, now, because I saw this, God is holy. Now, God is tri-personal. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all devoted to each other. And the place where you see this probably the most prominently is in John chapter 17. Um, I'm really excited. I have to uh, give you a little bit of an insight. I when we finish with our Acts series, we're going we're gonna to do John. We're going to do the Gospel of John. And as I started looking ahead, I'm already so excited to go to John 17. Because to me, John 17 is one of the most precious, full, satisfying chapters in the Bible. Sometimes we call um, the prayer that Jesus gives our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Sometimes we call that the Lord's Prayer. Um, that's actually like, more like the disciples' prayer. You know, that's the prayer for the disciples. This, John 17, is the real Lord's Prayer. Uh, I can't get them to change the titles in, the, in the, the, the Bible editions, though. Nobody listens to me when I write my letters on my big chief tablet and send them in. Um, but Jesus is praying to the Father. He's about to be crucified. He's about to die. And I just want to give you a taste of the way that he talks to the Father in this passage. Uh, in John 17, 20, he's speaking to the Father all the way, and you can see his heart attitude toward the Father here. But listen to this. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. Listen to how Jesus defines his relationship to the Father. I in them, and you in me, that we may become perfectly one, so that, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's telling the Father, I love you and you love me. There is this exchange of delight. There is this exchange of devotion going on between the persons of the Trinity. And so, I, you know, it's not like an invention to talk about the persons of the Trinity loving and delighting in one another because you see it just overflowing in Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is an unselfish totally devoted relationship that the three persons have to each other. And so that lies at the essence of reality. That is the essence of where everything comes from is these three. And so when we talk about holiness, I think the notion comes up that God hates sin. We need to bring that into the equation at this point. So given that God's holiness is his devotion to himself and his devotion to his own name, why does God hate sin? I'm going to open that up for, for possible answers. Why would God hate sin if holiness is his devotion to himself? What would that make sin? Separation. Be separation. Separation. Well, whatever would... It's the opposite of, of what God is. It's the opposite of being devoted to God. Right. Let's go even further. I don't know where I'm going with this, but what would it be devotion to? A devotion to self? I think that ultimately the answers have to come back to that, right? Because even if we say, well, you're devoted to this other person or devoted to this sin or devoted to this thing that God has commanded you not to have, ultimately the answer still comes back to self, doesn't it? I must increase and he must decrease, essentially. Um, sort of the opposite of John the Baptist. Um, Sin is everything that God is opposed to, everything that is opposite to God. Um, Stephen Charnock has this quote. It says that uh, since God loves himself, he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. Um, the Bible tell us, tells us God's holy in the superlative. It uses that, uh, they call it the trice hagion, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John, uh, Isaiah 6, 3. This idea is there's no one who's holier than God. There's no one who's more devoted to God than God. So every creature in all of creation is measured, measured against the superlative holiness of God. Um, sometimes 
we prefer to measure ourselves against our neighbor's holiness, right? And uh, it's very easy to do it. I can always think of a neighbor who's, who my perception is at least, they're doing worse than me. I can always think of somebody who's not being as good as me, someone who's uh, maybe, I've got a neighbor somewhere in my neighborhood, and for some weird reason, they love throwing Bud Light bottles out into our neighborhood. I don't know why. Maybe it's their strange way of blessing all of those who live around them. I, I'm not exactly sure. And I frequently find myself going on walks with my kids and thinking, I don't know who this dirtbag is, but I'm better than him. Um, and uh, I'm at least better at not throwing beer bottles out than him. Um, and it's really easy to pick that guy and say, that's the one I'm going to measure myself against. I know I'm doing better than this guy. And so we sort of pick the low-hanging fruit. We sort of measure ourselves against the easiest things. But the reality is we don't get that luxury. We get measured against the standard of God and who he is. How devoted are we to God? Are you as devoted to him as the Son is? Are you as devoted to him as the Father is? Are you devoted to him as the Spirit is? And the answer for us always has to be no. Now where do we see the greatest and clearest visible display of the holiness of God in Scripture. I realize this is open-ended enough that you might get it wrong, and you, you, you wouldn't be mistaken necessarily for not getting what I'm getting at. But where do we see the holiness of God in the starkest, most powerful way? On the cross? There we go. I, w- I thought somebody might say Moses, you know, God puts his hand on Moses or appears to him. There are, there are theophanies in scripture, which we've already talked about some in here, but you don't see the holiness of God in a visible way, in a more stark way than at the cross. Um, <clears throat> and the reason is because we see the holiness of God in Christ's own life, right? If you look at the life of Jesus um, nobody could convict Jesus of sin. I actually had some students email me this week because we were talking about the fact that Mary and her sons didn't believe right away. You have that moment, I think it's in Mark chapter 3, where G- uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come and they think that he's gone mad. They think that he's crazy. And so they come to actually confront him. And they don't get at him. He, they don't make it into the house where he's at. But there, it's this interesting moment because we were talking about the book of Jude. And Jude is one of the brothers of Jesus. And Jude doesn't convert until after the resurrection. He's, it's only after Jesus rises from the dead that he's in the upper room uh, when all of these things take place leading up to Pentecost. And we were talking about the fact that Jesus' own brothers grew up in this house with him. And they knew their sinless brother, and yet they struggled to actually see it in the end. But if you were one of Jesus' brothers and, and you said, Jude, tell us about all the sins that Jesus has committed. Tell us of something that wrong that he's done to you. Jude would have been like, like, just, I'm sure there's got to be something, you know, like. And then you start thinking about it after a while, and Jude realizes, I mean, maybe it's not obvious to him. His brother has never sinned against him. I don't know. I I guess you might just take it for granted. I've got a nice brother. He's a nice guy. He never does anything wrong to me. But he never sinned. 
He lived his whole life. No one could pin even one accusation of sin against him. He never broke the law of God. One of the really interesting things, to me at least, is when you read the Ten Commandments, read the Ten Commandments with Jesus in mind. Read the first commandment, have no other gods. And then think about Jesus and think about the ways that he kept that command. Or, or go to the second commandment, don't make any images, you know. He was the closest thing to an image of God that was ever made, at least legitimately. Um, you just go through the different commandments and you just think through, he never took the Father's name in vain. He never broke the Sabbath. He never dishonored his father and mother. He never committed adultery. He never told one lie in his entire life. And you just go through. He never coveted anything from anybody. He never wanted something that was legitimately someone else's. And so if you ever wonder, what does it look like to live out the commandments? What does it look like to live a holy life? You'll need to look no further than Jesus. Because you'll never see a better display of holiness than in the life of Jesus. Um. There is perhaps a more potent aspect of Christ's, Christ's life, and it's the place where you see holiness in the life of Jesus the most powerfully, and Grant already said it, and it's in his death. Because the death of Jesus is the one place where we see God's commitment to defending his holiness. And you see him carry it to the furthest place that it'll go. Um, because the reality is God is holy. He always had to punish sin. When, in fact, would someone else look up Romans 3.25? Would someone look that passage up? One of the things that you see here in this verse is that God has to punish sin. He has to deal with it, right? Uh, David, you have it? I have it. My eyes aren't good enough for it. Oh, okay. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Not because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay. God needs... To show his righteousness. If you look at Christ on the cross, if you were to see Christ on the cross and say, why did this need to happen? One of the answers that Paul gives is he had to show his righteousness because we didn't see his righteousness. All these years, he's just dismissing sin. He's just letting people off the hook. And this charge gets leveled against him or it could certainly be leveled against him. Do you not care? That your holiness is sullied, that, that people aren't devoted to you, that people don't love you. Um, think of King David, right? King David is not actively thinking, I hate God. I'm going to sleep with Bathsheba because right now I just really hate God. And yet at the same time, God comes to him and in essence says, why do you hate me, David? Why do you hate me? And the reason is because... David had God out of mind. He had actually said, I'm not going to think about you. I'm not even, I, I don't even going to let you cross my mind, Lord. And that's exactly what's happening. He's hating God. And then Nathan comes to David and he says, because you repented, because David did repent, he says, God has put away your sin. 
and you just, no explanation. How did he put it away? How does God just put away someone's sin? What is going on here? It is this amazing moment in the Old Testament where just someone just gets a massive, major sin dismissed. Now, there are still consequences, but his sin gets put away. And the charge could easily be leveled against God. Do you not care about sin? Do you care? Are you not holy? What's going on here? And so God forgives sin. And he forgives it for a long time. And yet he's holy. He's been forgiving sin and he's holy. The question is, how does he forgive sin and not compromise his holiness? One of the things that when you have a God-centered view of the universe, when you have a God-centered view of reality and scripture and the events uh, that take place in scripture, I hope that you do sense the dilemma that forgiveness creates for God. Forgiveness actually does create a true dilemma because every single time that God ever forgave a sinner, he was opening himself up to a serious charge that you are not a good judge. You see all these articles in newspaper in the in the papers uh, about a judge that someone committed some horrible crime, and the judge gives him a week in jail. You know, and you just get so frustrated at the judicial system. Sometimes you think, "What is going on? What is wrong with these people?" And God, if He doesn't deal with sin at the cross, He could easily be one of those articles in the paper. Uh, God. Let's let's David off the hook. Let forgives his sin, doesn't care about his holiness. So what do you do about that? And according to God, according to Paul, that is why Jesus had to die because God forgiving sin is serious if he's a holy God. So you ask how holy is God? And the answer is you look to the cross and you see the innocent man dying. So listen to what Stephen Charnock says. He says, Not all the vials of judgments that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious devils, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his own son. You will not see a fuller expression of the wrath of God against sin than the wrath of God let loose upon his own son at the cross. And so the holiness of God, when you think of the cross, uh, you don't get more beautiful and ugly all at once than at the cross of Jesus. It's beautiful because God is holy. This is how holy he is. And it's ugly because of what it takes to do it. He is, this is also the place where we see the son's love of the father. We see the devotion of Jesus to the father. We actually see the holiness of Jesus in his willingness to go on the cross because every step of the way he says, I'm devoted to my father. I'm devoted to the father's good name. I would rather die than see his name besmirched. What an incredible testimony of, the holy, of what holiness looks like than the son saying, I would rather die than see this happen to the father. Now here's the rub. The rub is that God expects holiness of us. He is of, Habakkuk 1.13 says, he is of purer eyes than to see evil. Um, 
Leviticus 11.45 and Leviticus 19.2 both say this, be holy as I am holy. That's the standard that gets set before us as human beings. So holiness is not a, a choice. It's not an option. It is not just a, a preferred lifestyle. It is the calling of everybody who's a believer. Anybody who follows God is called to live a holy life. Uh, Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So you see that non-optional nature of holiness. Um, Voss says this. Remember, we went to Voss earlier, and I was bragging on the English translation. Listen, he says, For the creature to mean holy means consecrated to God. To be holy means to be consecrated to God. It means to be devoted to God. It means to be set apart for his purposes. So... Just like holiness for God means to love God supremely, for us, holiness means we love God supremely too. And it comes out in how we live. Um, Robert Murray McShane, he said, he prayed this way. He said, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. Um, see, the hard part about holiness is, is that the more holy we become, the more we love God's name, the more devoted we are to him, the more keenly we feel our failures. The more keenly our, our failures, our um, lack of devotion to God just shows up. And it shows up and it smacks us and it's so painful to see. It's so painful for us to realize I talk about holiness. Holiness is important to me. And yet I never hit that standard. I'm always falling short. And the more holy we become, the more we see how much we fall short. Um, <clears throat> there are things that bother me now in my own heart and in my own life that never even crossed my mind before. Even after I became a believer, there are things that I see now that I hate about myself and I hate about my own heart that wouldn't have been something on my radar two-year-old Christian Adam. You know, stuff that I, it just wouldn't have even been a problem to me. And so life's circumstances have a way of, of showing you that you aren't as holy and you aren't as devoted to God as you maybe used to think you were. So when I was a first believer, when I was a brand new Christian, I didn't feel so down on myself. I actually felt really, really good about brand new Christian Adam. And then now here I am and I've lived half my life as a believer and I feel very, very differently about myself. And so um, this is a moment of... Uh, of transparency. It's an opportunity to share a little bit. But can you think of things in your life that God has used to show you your own unholiness? <clears throat> Circumstances or people or. Our children. Okay. You want to share more or is that all? No, just that. <laughs> children. Well, how do Christians show you your own unholiness? I'm not elaborate. Okay, okay. I wasn't in the room, maybe. I would say marriage, too. I mean, you've got children and marriage. And, uh, you know, if, if it's going to sound like a backhanded statement against singleness, it's not. But I thought better of myself when I was single. Um, and I thought better of myself when I didn't have kids. And both of those things, man, they just, they pull all the idols out. All the idols of comfort, all the idols of I want life my way, they just get thrown on the ground. 
and you still want those things. You still love those idols, but now you, it's like you can't have them. And so you see them really plainly. Can you think of other, other circumstances God's used to show you your unholiness? hard to get around it when you read through the, uh, the larger catechism questions on the Ten Commandments. You think, you know, or I can at least think when I first became a Christian, you know, you think through the Ten Commandments, you know, that's, you know, pretty much the standard, right? And you're, you go through and you're like, ah, you know, I might do all right here, I might do all right there, but the more you, you come to understand um, what the moral law requires, the more you realize you're, you're, you're probably failing one through ten each and every day. Uh, my uh, my brother and Adam knows about this. Got involved with a group that believed in uh, sinless perfectionism, which is you become a Christian and, and eventually there's some point in time where you might can actually go days without sinning. Uh, this side of the grave. And um, to to bounce off what Adam said earlier, the, the more you become in tune with uh, God's holiness. I think you, as, you're, as, you sanctif- as you become more sanctified as a Christian, you really become more in tune with where you fail. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was a big eye-opener when dealing with that group. Is It came across as this great zeal and love for God that they were able to obtain this sinless perfectionism. But when you step back and realize, how are, <laughs> how are you taking your sin less serious and, and claiming to be even more zealous for God than you were before? So that was kind of eye-opening. It's like if you define holiness, if you define holiness and if you define the law of God down so that it's so thin that anyone can keep it, maybe maybe you are sinless, you know? (laughs) It doesn't go any deeper than the heart. It it, it just stays sort of on the surface. Um, but, But your real answer is the law of God, right? When you read the law of God and you understand it really, really well and you're exposed to it and you hear it, you just think, oh my goodness. It's like when it's like in the temple when Hezekiah when they find the law and the people are terrified. They they're suddenly terrified because they're reading the law for the first time and they see all the commands and they see all of the warnings and they see all the punishments for breaking it and they say, "Oh no, we're going to die." Like that's what it sort of without the dying part, it should be like that when we're exposed to the law and when we understand <clears throat> it well. Um <clears throat> But yeah, the, the law, that's a fantastic answer. That's one of the functions of the law that sometimes I was reading in Martin Luther this morning. Uh, you know, when I look at the watch, I'm about to say something that's not in the script. I was reading Martin Luther this morning on Galatians. One of the things Luther says is that the law is one of the greatest things that's ever been given to us, but it has no, no power to save us. And he's absolutely right. But one of the things that I think sometimes people that followed Luther didn't catch was the fact that the law has this strengthening side to it as well. When we read the law, suddenly we're given a target to aim at. When we read the law, suddenly we realize there are things that need to change in our lives and God uses that to shape us. So um, the law can have this sanctifying effect too that we maybe miss out on. Um, Oh, I find animals have that effect on me too. If you have a pet... If you have a pet doggy that maybe uh, likes to chew up your favorite things, maybe you find the same thing. As uh, as we wrap up, let me just do what Scripture does. Um, because if we if we end on this note where we say, man, I sure am rotten. The more holy I become, the more rotten I feel about myself. I, I think that would leave us in a darker place than the Bible does. 
hopefully that's not where you end up you end up learning about the holiness of God and then you just end up feeling like well that's me I'm garbage I'm human garbage well s- scripture doesn't separate our our holiness and our growth toward him from our union with Christ so if I could do one thing I would just want to almost wrap up on this idea of union with Christ because there's encouragement to be found here because I'm going to read from Herman Herman Bovink He says, to understand the benefit of sanctification correctly, we must proceed from the idea that Christ is our holiness in the same sense in which he is our righteousness. So Jesus is our holiness. Jesus is our righteousness, right? There's no good in us. So when we talk about being justified, we say it's only by God. It's only by Christ's righteousness applied to us. And Bavink says, we need Jesus for our holiness the same way. He is a complete and all-sufficient Savior. He does not accomplish His work halfway, but saves us really and completely. He does not rest until after pronouncing His acquittal in our conscience, He has also imparted full holiness and glory to us. Holiness, sanctification, consists in the reality that in Christ God grants us, along with righteousness, also holiness and does not just impute it but also inwardly imparts it by regenerating and renewing working of the holy spirit until we've been fully conformed to the image of his son so in other words we need to be very careful not to think of our own holiness as something we do we think of of being pronounced righteous in god's eyes we think of being justified and we say that's all god's work but sanctification and holiness is something that it's all me. It's all me. And Boving says, no, no, no. You need to be united to Jesus, not just so you can be pardoned, but for your holiness too. Even that comes from Jesus. Even that comes from what he's already done, and he's already lived out, and he's already accomplished. <clears throat> Jesus came to make us holy, according to 1 Peter 2.24. He came so you and me, so that all of us could be proclaimed righteous. And he came to ensure that righteousness would show up in our daily lives and it would show up in the way that we live. Um, any questions about holiness? Any questions about what it means to be devoted to God? Is there some blind spot? or Yeah, Robert. No, you don't have time to get into this, now, but it would make a real good follow-up next week if you wanted to. What does this look like? Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. We heard all these words. What does it look like for people driving down the street, for people shopping, uh-huh. for people disciplining their children, for people going to the doctor's office? What does it look like? Maybe next week Grant will just read the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments. And also it's, it's relationship to sanctification. Yeah. How much of this is what we do? It's interesting, this word holy, we, we associate it with <clears throat> some of the other categories we associate it with, and maybe this kind of answers at least one little piece of what Robert's saying is Sunday. You know, we're commanded to keep this day holy. Mm-hmm. That's something that stems from God as <clears throat> Um How does this day look different than the rest of the world keeps it for us? Not just the church hour, but the whole day. Mm-hmm. You know, does it look different for us than it does for the world? Yeah, and uh, and then also the interesting verse in Corinthians that talks about children of a believing uh, parent being holy. Mm-hmm. 
interesting that God would associate his attribute to an infant. Yeah. Um, this child is devoted to God. Yeah. Mm. I think that definition of holiness holds up. I think it's I think it's a good definition. Yeah. Um <clears throat> but you're right, there are so many avenues we could sort of chase this down if we wanted to. There are a lot of potential rabbit trails here. But my I guess my hope is that at least now when you hear somebody say God is holy or when you talk about the holiness of God, maybe there's a little more substance to it underneath cuz Holy is like a word that is such a catchphrase. It's such a, I, I hate to say the word cliche, but it is almost like a cliche or it can be the way we use it, that sometimes we lose sight of what it actually is getting at. What does it really mean for God to be holy? Hopefully, at least we have a better picture of it this morning. I think most people say God is good, and then when they say holy, that means God is good as square. Yeah, like he's really good. If we're supposed to be holy, then how do we be good square? And what does it look like? Almost like holiness is like moral perfection. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, that's like a, um, a byproduct of being holy. So we think of moral, I think we put, we, we sort of miss the, we miss the essence of it, right? The essence is God's devoted to himself and we should be devoted to him. And when we do that, of course, moral perfection comes from it. But first and foremost, there's a love that happens first. There's something that we love more than that sin. I don't know. Like I said, hopefully, hopefully there's, this is clearer than it was before. Hopefully we didn't get let more muddy this morning. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we, we are unholy. We are in ourselves all unrighteousness. And yet you are full of beauty and you are full of perfection and holiness and truth. Give us hearts to worship you for who you are in your holiness, in your perfection, and in your fullness. Give us hearts to be holy too. But even more than all those things, set our eyes on Christ and protect us from the sinful self-sufficiency that it is so easy for us to fall into. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.